Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I always remember in the, in the bush down behind Contractors Village one day, I was sort of, I can't remember, I think I was riding my bike or running down the track and didn't see a buffalo that was standing off to the side and spooked him and he immediately turned around and chased me which was fun so I remember running through the running down the track with him running through the bush beside me sort of trying to catch up with each other so. <laughs> Blue Douglas where do I even begin with this guy he's lived in the region basically his entire life and my goodness he's got some stories to tell in this conversation, Blue shares with us what life was like growing up here in the good old days. The adventures, which include him being a makeshift bird handler for a movie, running the debutante ball for years, and I'll tell you what, the man can dance. How he got into the various businesses he now runs, and how he met the love of his life. So without further ado, sit back and relax and get ready for a true blue yarn by a local legend. Now, just to get things rolling, a little bit of housekeeping. First up, thank you so much for clicking on this podcast. My name's Monica O'Hanlon, and you could say I'm a bit of a sticky beak. I just love hearing people's stories, because it's true what they say. Everyone's got one. I work at Gove FM in northeast Arnhem Land in the NT. It's one of the most remote and unspoilt parts of Australia. If you're someone who isn't familiar with it, here's what you need to know. The Jungle people are the traditional owners of this region. Their vibrant culture dates back more than 40,000 years. The hub, where I live, is called Nullumboy a town created on the Gove Peninsula after the establishment of the bauxite mine. You're probably asking, what's the purpose of this podcast? I've met so many weird and wonderful people, whether they're from here or just passing through. I want to know how their path led them to this tiny little dot on the map. And it would be my absolute pleasure to share it with you. I think we're going to start traditionally today. I want to know, how long have you been in Nulamboy? I've been in Go for 46 years at least, nearly 47 years. 46 years. Yep. That's insane. So what year was that? Do you remember? Yeah, 1972 I came here with my family. So I only just turned one. Oh my so, God. Um, yeah. Basically, don't ask me too much about that time period. I don't remember a whole lot. <laughs> so you basically, you've pretty much lived your entire life yeah, here then? Yeah, no, I've never left. Um, so um, grew up here as a kid and went to all the different schools here and yeah, basically just spent my entire life here. So Wow. What was it like, like you said, you were one when you first got here, but what was it like 
your early memories of the town because I can imagine it would have changed a lot. Yeah, it has. When, um, of course, when I first went to school, the what's now the Nullumboy Primary School was the Nullumboy Area School. Um, so all of the grades and everything were there. And then gradually over time, I think it was about, um, about a year or two years before I progressed from what would have been primary school to high school was when they separated the schools and built the, the new high school. So, yeah, basically, I think it was about two years after school opened that um, I progressed from, from primary school to high school and you know, finished my entire schooling there. So there's still a few of the teachers there that were there when I was there. Good old uh, Don McKinnon, he's still around. So He was one of your teachers. Yeah, he was one of my teachers. When <laughs> um, I, and, and the funny thing is, is I, know, I know he cops an absolute ribbing for it, but in year eight, um, when he, he came to me one day in, in woodwork class, I said to him, I'm going to blue, I'm going to build a boat. And I went, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> He said, yeah, no, I'm going to build a boat. And I jokingly on that on that day, uh, sort of Christ knows how long ago, said to him, well, when you finish building it, will you build me a wheel, build a wheelchair ramp so they can wheel me on to have a look around it? <laughs> and I still to this day remind him of that because he still to this day hasn't finished that boat, Christ knows, 30 odd years ago. So. It's insane, isn't it? He used to say the same thing to me. It's funny that we've had the same teachers, same experience, but a little bit different. Yes, exactly. So how would you describe your childhood then? Was it a pretty like free-range childhood, would you yeah, say? Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, um, growing up here in Gove, it's it's very similar to what what um, kids still currently get here. I mean, the, the township here and the, the community, there was probably a lot more sense of community back then, and that's um, that's still reflected to this day when you sort of look around Facebook at the, the different pages that are, are created. I mean, there's a, a Growing Up in Gove Facebook page that exists, and uh, the people that are on that are people that were basically in Gove back in the days when I grew up so and that I mean even although those people have left town uh, that sense of community still exists with them and they still to this day keep in touch with each other through Facebook and there's I don't know probably like four or five uh, Gove reunions are held down around Rockhampton and Mackay in that area every year and they, they come from everywhere to, to get together and remember the old times. So. Isn't that incredible? It just goes to show how special um, this region is and how it really connects and unifies exactly. people. Exactly, yeah, and, and not only that, the people that made it what it was. Um, as I said, uh, even to this day, they still sort of stick together in a fairly tight-knit group while they're spread across the country. They still stay in t- touch with each other. I guess that's the, the beauty of social media these days is uh, you can do that still. Um, and yeah, it's quite often fun. Phil Tremellon, as I said, is the, the main instigator of the Growing Up in Go Facebook page, <laughs> and I still to this day love he puts up all these old photos that he took 20 or 30 years ago of Cape Arnhem and other bits and pieces, and I've generally got something that's current day, which I can then put up and match <laughs> match with him so that uh, people can still see what the place is like. So, so you, I guess your family would have come because of the mine? Yeah, my um, my parents moved here at the time. Um, my uh, father at the time was uh, the manager at Woolies, oh. and um, my mother actually put the um, the very first customer through the checkouts at Woolies when um, <laughs> when it opened. She uh, used to take great pride in uh, telling me the story about how they they opened the doors. It looked a lot lower up until the upgrade recently. It still looked much the same as it did back then. <laughs> and um, yeah, she took great pride in telling me how they opened the doors and did the grand opening and all the girls standing there behind the checkout waiting for the first customer and apparently uh, a single guy walked in, wandered into the shop, walked around, picked up a can of Coke, walked out through my mum's register and <laughs> she had the, the pleasure of putting the very first customer through Woolies here in Goves. Wow, a can of Coke was the a first thing A can of Coke so. was the very th- first <laughs> thing ever bought at Woolworths and Gove, yeah. Do you have any fond mem- or do you have any favourite memories, I guess, from growing up? In this uh, region, nothing, nothing specifically. I guess. I mean, my entire childhood was very, very good. As I said, growing up in the area here, we used to spend a lot of time out camping, a lot of time in the bush. Our family was very, 
uh, camping and bush orientated, so basically grew up um, out in the bush a lot and, and doing bits and pieces out there. Um, and then, yeah, no, as I said, growing older, going to going to school and everything that was associated with that. I was a pretty good boy, so I never got involved in uh, <laughs> a lot of the uh, the stuff that went on outside of school. But um, yeah, so um, no, but no, as far as my childhood went, it was um, it was certainly a fun experience and certainly. Uh, a very, very good place to grow up in, and it still is today. So, in what way can you elaborate on on why? Um, I, again, it comes back to the sense of community and the fact that um, parents to this day, or well, back then, um, would let their kids go out and play, and basically anywhere in town didn't necessarily know where they are, didn't have the, the mobile phone thing, and back in those days. So, but there was still that that safety net of knowing that it didn't matter where your child was in town, somebody was looking out for them. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, even right through to, to later years, um, it, um, when uh, when I met my wife and her kids used to go out and uh, it wasn't uncommon for them to come home and uh, mum would go, well, you've been at so-and-so's place or you've been on the rock outside Fred's or <laughs> something like that. And the kids would look at her in disbelief and go, how do you know that? And it doesn't matter how I know that. And, of course, she knows because somebody <laughs> drove past, saw them sitting there and was passed the information on. So, yeah, it was... <laughs> I said, in that respect, being a child back in those days was fantastic. Yeah. My experience growing up here, I feel like I had a few near misses with maybe like buffaloes and crocodiles and like kind of the wildlife in the area. Did you ever have any? Yeah, I did. I, I, I always remember in the, in the bush down behind Contractors Village one day, I was sort of, I can't remember, I think I was riding my bike or running down the track and didn't see a buffalo that was standing off to the side and spooked him and he immediately turned around and chased me which was fun so I remember running through the running down the track with him running through the bush beside me sort of trying to catch up with each other so (laughs) but um yeah I mean uh, that was sort of one of the few experiences I had but of course there were a lot of other experiences in town with people that were were um yeah injured by buffaloes and other bits and pieces so yeah I do always remember um when I was in in primary school of uh having the very first crocodile that ever took somebody here. Um, that was back in, I think it was the early 80s or something. It was, uh, the very first person that was ever taken by a crocodile was taken out the front of the, the creek at Rainbow Cliffs. Oh, so yeah. So he was, um, he was uh, chasing crayfish on the reef out there and got taken by a crocodile. And, of course, they, they later found that particular crocodile and, and uh, terminated him. And, yeah, he was brought to, to school in a boat for everybody to look at. I think there's photos of that on the... Growing up in Go Facebook page and what have you, so one of the one of the things I do remember with the wildlife around here. So. They brought the cr- the dead crocodile to school, or was it still alive? No, 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 it was well and truly dead. Um, oh. And of course, back in those days, there wasn't as much <laughs> emphasis on on that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I guess it was probably more designed to to put the community at ease and and um, just basically show them that, uh, that the crocodile that had taken that particular person was was no longer an issue for the for the community in that area so yeah maybe a bit of a warning to be careful when you're swimming yeah yeah definitely um as i said it was sort of a, a, i think a bit of a reassurance thing but also yeah, a bit of a warning particularly to the school kids on on how big these things are because you don't actually know how big they are until yeah. you, you get to stand beside one so. and he was a rather large creature that one so Oh, wow. But you never had any close experiences with crocodiles yourself? Not with crocodiles, no. Um, I mean, growing up here too, I'm sure um, a lot of ex-Govites would, uh, would have heard of the Douglas Farm, so I did have a lot of, a lot of exposure to other wildlife. We, um, um, our place still still in Contractors Village at uh, Incline Circuit, but we used to have um, 
quite a number of animals. We became the, the <laughs> fosters for um, joeys and, uh, and, and wallabies and wallaroos when their parents got killed here. And so we ended up with about, I think we ended up with nearly 30 at one stage in the backyard, Whoa. along with um, <laughs> chooks, ducks, emus, pigs, magpie geese. Um, <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. You name it, we'd had it at some stage or another. So, was that just because your family were really generous and like cared about the well-being of the animals, or did you eat them? Or no, no we didn't eat them. <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was. They were, they were all orphaned or or injured in some way, shape, or form. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, we we became known in town as as the place to take those sorts of things. As I said, my mum used to we used to raise all the, the baby you know, wallabies and wallaroos when uh, they got orphaned and. Um, it wasn't uncommon to have four or five hopping around the house at any given time. And, um, we had one, the, the very first one that we ever got, he actually grew into be a, big, a very big wallaby, but he lived in the house for a long time until eventually he took up eating the grass matting on the floor and stealing stuff off the table and what have you. Eventually mum said, no, that's it, he's got to go. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we had a two-storey house. It wasn't uncommon for him to hop up and down the stairs. He, he used to, <laughs> people would look at that and assume that he couldn't do that. But yeah, he was very, very capable of doing that sort of stuff. So Wow. <laughs> also had another one when um, the, the, probably the second or third and he was a waller, what, what we call an antlopine wallaroo. We don't actually get red kangaroos here. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, big, they, they look very similar. Don't get quite as big. But, um, yeah, we had a, an antlopine wallaroo, a big male, who was, um, he hated children, absolutely hated them. If you sort of upset him in any way, shape or form, turned your back on him, he'd, he'd chase you across the lawn and, <laughs> and yeah, mug you. But um, he actually broke his leg um, through, a, through an accident in his cage one time and we did everything we could to try and repair it and in the end it didn't work. So we decided that uh, the, the vet at the time said, oh, well, I'm sorry, we're going to have to put him down. My, my father at the time said, well, why don't we just cut his leg off? And the vet went, no, you can't do that, he's a kangaroo. I said, well, why not? You do it with dogs and cats and everything else. Why can't well, kangaroos have only got two back legs and they need it. And she said, well... What's the worst that can happen? We cut it off and it doesn't work. We have to turn, have to put him down. Um, in the end, we, we did exactly that and it all healed up and uh, he lived perfectly fine. In fact, he was, um, he, he was, he, his name was Sue. Um, we had a habit of, we had a habit of, um, of naming the, the wallabies and things that we got after the people that had, had given them to us to look after. So yeah, he became a boy called Sue, of course, after the famous Johnny Cash song, but um yeah, even in his later years, I mean, he, he still got around. He balanced perfectly well on one leg and his tail and his front legs. And he could, again, we, he proved it with children. If, if the kids ever pissed him off, he would get up and literally hop on one leg and chase them down and yeah, what a grab character. a hold of them. So, yeah. Wow. And so did you guys perform that amputation yourself? Or? No, it was done by a vet. At the, at the time, there was a vet um, that used to come over from Darwin once a month and, and pay a visit here and... Um, yeah, she was she was very well known to the community at the time. So yeah, she she was. We were fortunate in that um, a lot of the operations and stuff she did for us at the time she didn't really charge us for. So because um, oh. it was it was sort of trying to save wildlife. So yeah, it was it was an interesting experiment. It worked quite well. Yeah, who would have thought that? That's incredible. Um, do you have? Would you say that's one of the wackiest memories that you have, or do you have any other like interesting memories that would be relatable? or interesting for people maybe that are listening interstate? Well, we, um, I mean, one of the other things that springs to mind at the time, it was when I was a, a teenager, we actually had um, 
uh, a film company come to town and they shot a movie here. Um, it was all about um, a bird smuggler who was stealing birds and smuggling them around town in the in the Mr Whippy van. <laughs> And um, yeah, he uh, they came to town and were the the main actor was actually Norman Gunston in the movie. Um, so yeah, it was it was basically the story about a young indigenous girl that had discovered that this guy was was catching and smuggling birds, and sort of the the story followed around sort of her trying to have him arrested and do things do something with him. So that when they came to town to film it, they. Um, uh, put out a, a call around town looking for anybody that had any local wild birds that they could put in cages and and um, basically to, for, for scenery shots and things like that. And uh, the movie itself was specifically based around um, the uh, red-collared lorikeet. There was a particular sort of link in the in the story to a red-collared lorikeet, and uh, the filming producer and, and the people involved in the film had heard about our place and how many animals we had so they rocked up at our place one day and said look we're just wondering whether or not you've got anything here that we could possibly use in the movie and uh, so we brought them inside and whether I think at the time we had a cockatoo and a corella and I actually happened to have a red collared lorikeet in a cage there and we had magpie geese and emus and things in the backyard it was all fun and um, yeah the uh, the producers sort of said oh this is great you've got all these birds and then they saw the red collared lorikeet and went oh We've been looking for one of those everywhere. We haven't been able to find one. And we said, oh, have you? Said, yeah, yeah. Said, well, we've had this one for years. Oh, do you think we could use him? We could use him in a number of filming shots. He said, well, I don't suppose he's tame, is he? And I just stuck my hand in the cage. He humped, hopped on my hand. I brought him out. I said, what, well, like this? And they nearly died because it was exactly what they wanted. So they actually came back um, a couple of days later and they actually shot the opening scene to that movie in our backyard. Oh, wow. So they got a... They got a um, a branch off a gum tree, and you uh, you nobody will ever know. But the branch that the bird was sitting in when it was filmed in my backyard actually had me lying on the ground holding the branch. It didn't become <laughs> part of the movie, of course, but um, no, they put the, the red collared lorikeet in the in the tree, and he's sitting there cleaning himself. The, sort of the, they focused on him, and then focused through the tree past him to the little girl standing in the background. Um, so that was the opening scene to the movie. So that was all shot in our backyard, and I was involved in that. But probably the the funniest thing that ever happened there was the scenery that went on around the the shooting of that scene, because it was done in our backyard where we had, as I said, goats and emus and chooks and ducks and wallabies and um, a magpie goose, a mad magpie goose, mind you. So um, while this is all going on, the um, goats have managed to steal the director's hat. It was a straw hat, so he's taken a big bite out of that. The wallaby I was talking about earlier, the big wallaby that we had, he had a horrible habit of ladies when they were walking through the backyard. He'd sneak up behind them and just shove his head up their dress. <laughs> Don't ask me why, but he used to do that. So he did that to a couple of people, scared the hell out of them. And then the magpie goose that we had had a horrible habit of when you weren't looking, he'd run up behind you and bite you on the backside. So a couple, <laughs> a couple of the people involved in the movie got bitten by the magpie goose. So yeah, we actually shot a video at the time, it probably doesn't exist anymore, of all of the things that went on around the outside of the shooting of this opening scene for this particular movie. So wow. yeah, it was uh, rather interesting. So. That's so funny. Do you remember the name of it? I don't actually remember the name of it. No, I think I did track it down. I'd have to have a look and see whether or not. I, I think I did actually track it down there a few years back. I um, went looking for it. Or somebody, or somehow I came across the title of it, but um, yeah. I don't think I was able to find a copy of it at the time. But um, yeah. So how old were you when that was happening? 
Uh, probably mid-teens, I suppose. So it would have been about 14 or 15, I suppose, when that took place. So, <laughs> What an experience. Yeah, it was. It was It was very different. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, as I said, being involved in... And, and as I said, the the, the, the funniest, funniest thing about it was the video that we shot around the outside of all this other stuff going <laughs> on with our wildlife with, with the film crew. So. Yeah. so you finished all your schooling here. Yep. Do, do you feel like you, I, I guess, do you feel like because you went to school in such a remote area, do you think it affected your schooling at all? No, it didn't affect my schooling at all. Um, and to be honest, um, back then and the years since then, I get really, really frustrated with, with people when I hear them say, oh, we've got to send our kids to boarding school because they'll get a better, better education. The honest truth is if you go back and look at the history of the Nullarboy High School um, and the number of kids from that school that passed in the top anywhere from 10.5 to 2% mm. of, of the population um, of the kids leaving school for the Northern Territory. It, it was, Nullarboy High School was right up there. So there is no way, shape or form, did anybody ever really have any detriment to, to going to school in Gove. That's what I believe. Um, and, yeah, as I said, the, it, I think I get frustrated when people seem to say, oh, we've got to send our kids away to get an education because they won't get any good education here because it's a small town, and that's to me, that's rubbish. Um, uh, the, 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 they are smaller class sizes, but not only that, as I said, the, the teachers that are here back, back in those days in particular had been here for many years, so they had the same sense of community and, and so on and so forth that, that got kids through their schooling and, and ensured it. And it came down to if kids wanted to... To be educated and and be in the top part, and they they had every opportunity to do exactly that, and a lot of them did. So, yeah. So, when you were in school, or just when you finished school, did you know what you wanted to do after? Uh, no, I um, we had a, a careers teacher at the, at the school at the time who sort of did the usual trick they do with all the kids and went around and said, righto, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then we all went, well, we don't know. So <laughs> um, was, I sort of decided that I wanted to to maybe get an electrical instrumentation apprenticeship with, with Nabalco back then when it was yeah. and um, sort of failed year 11 dismally, which was all my own fault, of course. Um, but when yeah, year 12 came around, we sort of did some investigation as to what I needed to do as far as ed education was to gain that apprenticeship. And was told at the beginning of the year that I had two choices. I either sit the top level math, science and, and do okay at that, or I sit the next level down and, and do really, really well at it. And I, I could still get in. So I chose the second option and, and did um, sort of maths one and two and, and other bits and pieces. Uh, and unfortunately, at the end of the year, when the time came to apply for the apprenticeship, I don't know whether things had changed or I'd been given the wrong information, but I didn't actually have a high enough education to do that. So while I sat the exam for the for the apprenticeship, I never actually got in at the time. Somebody else did, did ahead of me. Yeah, so from there, we sort of really didn't know what I was going to do. And back to, to my good old mother who said, no, well, you're going to go and get a trade. You're going to do something. You're going to get an apprenticeship and do something. And it doesn't matter what it is. You'll learn something. And then later on in life, if ever you need to use that you can can come back and use that so um, I ended up getting a um, thanks to again thanks to Don McKinnon through my woodwork teaching I, I particularly enjoyed woodwork so uh, I got an apprenticeship back then with a company called um, R&T Industries which was run by a very well-known family in town um, Rob and Denise uh, Fincham and um, they were a, a construction and, and plumbing company so I did a, a carpenter and joinery apprenticeship with them so I um, spent four years doing that and yeah, basically came out the other side of that, and, which was quite good. But 
Um, as with a lot of things, when it, when it comes to those sorts of things, we sort of you finish your apprenticeship, you very rarely get kept on by that company. They tend to move you on and, and refill the role with something else, which is what happened with me. So, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I then spent uh, the next 12 months or so working for um, just as a contract around town for other, for other building people. And then, yeah, basically from there, sort of my career progressed, and I really haven't been a carpenter and joiner much since then. A little bit bits and pieces here and there, so but um, yeah. So. Yeah, well, I mean that's a great segue because I I can't keep up with all the businesses that you run, but you've got a pizza truck, you've got a seafood. Is it butcher? Seafood, seafood and meat supply company business, yeah. Yeah. Is it security? Oh, I manage the airport security. Yeah. And also... And, um, we own the airport kiosk, so... Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you would ask me when I was leaving school, was I ever <laughs> going to become a pizza cook or a pizza chef, then, yeah, the answer would not have been yes at the time. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I've been through a very interesting career in that, um, as I said, we left the apprenticeship. I spent 12 months working for myself, and then at the, but at the time back then, ANSET was still in town. So, um, but they were, ANSET itself at the time, were pulling out of Gove as a business, as a company, but they were putting, as they did in a lot of small ports in Australia, they put in a, um, an agent to manage their, their business in town. So at the time, um, they offered all of their staff either redundancies or transfers, and a lot of them took them, a lot of them took transfers. So... ANSET had a, a six-month period or so where they needed people to, to work in a short term just to, to keep planes moving. So um, they were looking for a baggy chander at the time, so I put my hand up and took up throwing bags for an aircraft. So I did that for a few months until um, the guy the, in charge at the time took over the, the agency. And um, at the time, he, he took the agency on. He came to me and sort of said to me, well, I need somebody to keep throwing bags. Are you interested in staying with me? And at the time, I sort of said, well, I'm not going to throw bags for the rest of my life, so... Um, I'll stay as long as there's career advancement available down the line. He said, well, if you stay with me for another six months, I'll teach you to be a travel consultant. So um, we did exactly that. I then went on for sort of a few years later to, to managing the managing his agency for him and, and running the place and what have you until he sold the business. And then, um, yeah, back to back to mum's advice, I <laughs> went back to carpentry and joinery for 12 months until um, 2003 when 9-11 happened and um, they bought in airport security and uh, they're looking to employ people here in Gove to run the, the security or to do the security here in Gove and uh, having left the, the industry, I thought, I thought, well, they might be looking for somebody to run that place. I've got a bit of experience with, with aviation. I'll put my hand up. So when I did that at the time, I think it was group four. Um, grabbed me with both hands and said, yeah, well, we, we are definitely looking for a supervisor if you're interested. So I took the job on and I've been doing that for what's probably more than 15 years now So wow. with various companies. So. The best part of that old airport was getting your baggage. You wouldn't have to wait for it to come around on the carousel. Do you remember? It used yes. to come around. We used to, yeah, we used to drive it into the yard there and on a trolley. And on a, in, the, in the good old days, there wasn't even a, a fence or a, or a trolley there or, yeah. a, or a gate there. You just drive it on, drive it in, drive it off. People would walk out and pick it up. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, later when they sort of started to have a little bit more advancement in airport security, we got a, a fenced in yard, so we used to bring it in there, and that didn't even have a roof over it for a long time. So when it was raining, you got your bags got wet and you got wet and, <laughs> until they eventually put a roof over it. But um, yeah. yeah, so that no, was good. I would like to. I've always been curious about this, so I was stoked when you said you'd come in. How did you get into the debutante ball? <laughs> <laughs> I figured that I'd come in here somewhere. <laughs> I started um, ballroom dancing basically when I was in high school and people to this day still look at me and when I say I used to ball- do ballroom dancing laugh at me but um, that's all good. Um, so yeah, I, I started uh, in high school. They were actually as, as part of PE, they were running ballroom dancing classes oh, wow. with a couple, in, a couple in, at the time who were, would come to school and, and do a bit of, of teaching. And, um, I mean, back at school, I was never one that fitted in with a crowd and didn't really give much thought to what other people thought of me and particularly enjoyed it at the time. So I, they used to hold classes, I think it was on a Tuesday night down the town hall. So I think back then I was 12 or 13, so I wandered <laughs> along to their classes and, and um, yeah, took up learning to, to do ballroom dancing there. And um, they, back then, were running a debutante ball every two years. So, um, as I said, I just happened to be involved with, with those people at the time. So um, when the next Deb Ball came around, they asked whether or not I'd be interested in assisting them, which I did. And um, the following two years later, they'd left town. Um, and um, another lady by the name of Sue Van Lorick, who had been my partner for, for a little while, um, was coming along. And um, so the existing teacher at the time, I can't remember who it was, left about a month or so into the training for the Debs, so she took it over and she didn't have a partner, so she asked me to do it, so I was about 14 at the time, so um, wow. I partnered her to, to teach the Debs, and um, then a couple of years later when, when the time came around again, she'd left town by then, there was pretty much nobody else left to, to do it, so everybody turned to me and said at the time, would I be interested? So I said I would have been about 16, 17 at the time. Yeah, all right, why not? So <laughs> that's basically where I got involved. And and the sad thing is, is to this day, I've never actually done my debut. Aww. I've trained Christ knows how many people, including yourself, as you're aware. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've never actually partnered a, a lady at a dead ball. We did actually try and hold a an adult's dead ball one year, but never got enough people to do it. So it never actually went ahead and happened. So. Are they still running? No, they're not, unfortunately. Um, back um, when the curtailment happened here, we had a, a very tight-knit group of people that, that used to organise the Deb Ball every two years. So there was myself and my wife, Evelyn, and um, Debbie uh, Hanks and her husband, Chris Putland and his wife, um, Deanne Costelli and Steve Costelli. Um, were sort of the, the main core group that every two years we were silly enough to sort of <laughs> run into each other and go, we're going to do it again this year. And we go, yeah, all right, I suppose. So we would get together and we'd organise the committees and, and uh, of course, myself and Evelyn, Deanne and Steve used to do the, the dead ball training. And, um, yeah, they, the other guys used to get the committees organised and put them together and then show them what they needed to do to fundraise and so on and so forth. And, of course, when the curtailment happened, pretty much all of those people left. The only person left, or the only people left were myself and Evelyn. So, yeah. um, unfortunately, yeah, at the time, as I said, we um, we actually had um, <laughs> reached the point where the, the dead ball bank account required two signatures and they both became mine because there was nobody else left to sign <laughs> on it. So, um, But, yeah, no, unfortunately, there, yeah, there hasn't been one since. So.
basically every group that we put through we've always had some, always did really really well and it's always quite funny the the amount of training and teaching that went into it at the end of um, at the end of the night when it when it came around you'd always have uh, have the, uh, the young girls and boys come up to me oh no during this dance I did this I stuffed this up and did you see them <laughs> no I wasn't looking at that it's, nobody noticed nobody knew you were doing it was all good so. well Blue I actually you won't remember this this is just one of those what you were talking about I actually tripped over in my curtsy I was devastated yes. after like three months of training after, the, after that amount of training <laughs> there were a couple of people did that no I don't actually remember anybody ever going flat on their face but no I didn't get that tripped up, yeah but, um, yeah <laughs> I wasn't. I was so disappointed. I was like, "Really? I've got, I nailed the pride of Erin and yeah. the swing waltz, and yeah. I had to." Yeah. And I'm sure your instructor gave you all these uh, all these tips and hints about doing curtsies <laughs> in long dresses with high heels and so on and so forth, which not very many people practice when they came to classes, mm. although we used to encourage them to. So. Yeah, I just I'm not a curtsying kind of gal. I think. <laughs> oh, why not? <laughs> I'm just not good at How it. How many I'm times have you used your curtsy since? Not once. No, that'd be right. <laughs> Maybe I should bring it back. Oh, have you used any of your dancing? I have things? actually. I have literally brought the Pride of Erin out yeah. in the middle of like a dance floor at a club, and it it worked a treat. Surprised the hell out of everybody. <laughs> yeah, everyone's like, "What are you doing?" You know, I actually had. Um, um, I've just employed a new guy at the airport, Dan Cook. Everybody would know Dan. He grew up here. And he, he partnered one of the girls one year and he said to me the other day, he said, when are you taking up ballroom dancing classes again? I mean, everybody looks at cooking and going, no, no, but Eve said, no, he said, I loved it. He said, the, all of the dance moves that I learnt when we did our debutante ball, he said, I'd go down south the Gold Coast and what have you, I'd pull these moves out on, <laughs> on all the women on the dance floor and they couldn't believe that I could actually ballroom dance. And I went, yeah, well, you're doing well. <laughs> Is it, it's not happening now? Uh, what, dance classes? Yeah, we should start ballroom dancing up. <laughs> I'd love to do that, seriously. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have tried it various times, but uh, we haven't done anything for a number of years. So, but okay. yeah, no, it's always the option there. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe after this interview, it's going to oh, spark a little Could very well bit be. of interest. Now, you mentioned your lovely wife, Evelyn, before. Now, I would love to hear the story behind how you guys met. Yes, well, um, basically that goes back to um, when I was about 19 or 20. I was running ballroom dancing classes. I used to run them in various places. The high school, I think at the time we were running them at the primary school. And um, sort of being a, a fairly outgoing young guy at the time, I used to, uh, anybody I ran into at the time that sort of, and everybody does it, oh, I'd love to learn to ballroom dance. You sort of say, well, why don't you come along and come to classes? So. Um, Evelyn at the time was working in um, what is now the Refinery Cafe. Back then it was um, it was called Jessie's Healthy Foods at the time. Um, yeah, she was behind the counter and I just happened to be buying something there one day and of course we'd, sort of, we'd spoken to each other on various occasions and ballroom dancing came up and I sort of said to her, why don't you come along? He said, oh, I don't really have a partner. Don't matter, come along, we'll find your partner anyway. If not, I'll dance with you. <laughs> Was that, I just want to cut in there, was that your way of like trying to, you're like, she's a bit of all right? No, at the time, it was just one of those things I did to most women that I ran into that said they wanted to come ballroom dancing. So, so. it was quite innocent. Uh, it was on my behalf. Um, I'm led to believe that might not have been such the case on hers when she first showed up. But yeah, no, she came along to ballroom dancing classes and um, yeah, basically things sort of progressed from there. But yeah, it, it did the gentleman, it all started from learning to, to ballroom dance. So. You sweeped her off her feet. Well, apparently I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, but that was many years ago. So. Wow. 
So you were 19 or 20 when you first met? I was 20, met. yeah, I was 20 when I first met. Um, we only got married about five or six years ago. People say to me, how long have you been married? And I've only been married six years, but it feels like 26 because we've, li- we've literally been together that long. So. <laughs> Why did you decide to get married after all that time? Back in... Back, I suppose, when we first got together, um, Evelyn had two children and, and had been in a previous marriage and had no real desire to get married. And to be honest, at the time, I was only a young man and not really interested in getting married as either. As far as I was concerned, it was a piece of paper. Mm. Um, we didn't really need that to, to be committed to somebody. Um, but, I mean, you know what you girls are like over over time, sort of the I don't want to get married suddenly became, well, maybe we might one day, yeah, we possibly could, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, so one year I just decided, well, bugger it, maybe it's time that um, that we did because we'd been together, I think, as I said at the time, for probably 15, 18 years. So, um, yeah, so um, I decided one year that we went out on holidays. I thought, right, we, we were we actually went to my mum lived in Nambour on the Sunshine Coast, oh, so uh, we were staying with her down there, and um, uh, which we most years we went down and, and spent a, a month or so with her because Evelyn and her got on fantastically well. And um, I'd actually booked a, a romantic getaway for four or five nights um, at a place up near Mullaney called Secrets, which is um, all these beautiful, they're fantastic log cabins that are built back into a rainforest overlooking a lake. Um, so um, I'd booked, uh, I'd booked I think, four or five nights there just to, to get away and, and have a holiday. And um, at the time, I'd sort of read that they did various bits and pieces as far as proposals and things went. So I thought, oh, bugger it, it's time. So I spoke to my mother about it at the time. She said, you sure you want to do this? And yeah, yeah. So we went out and, and um, bought a ring and for, for each of us. And um, at the time, I rang up and organised. I organised to have um, um, Will You Marry Me written on the, the floor of the unit in, in rose petals. Um, Such so, a romantic. Well, I thought it was. And it was it was quite interesting when I organised it. The guy that ran the place, he's a fantastic old gentleman. He sort of said to me, he, he spoke to me later on. He said, no, right, we've organised this. He said, that's all set to go. He said, so when you arrive, he said, we'll meet you in the car park. He said, and I'll take you down the down the footpaths because they had various raised walkways to, to your unit. He said, but I'm just going to stay back at the end of the unit. You can go down, open the door and let your, your lovely wife to be in and... Um, yeah, because I understand what you're doing, and when you when you've you've done what you need to do, just call me down and bring your bags down and get you set up. Went, yeah, no worries, that's fine. So I took her down to the unit, opened the door, let her in, so that she went in first, and what have you. I'm standing outside doing something, and this little voice from inside the house goes, "Blue, what? I think we're in the wrong place. <laughs> what? I think we're in the wrong unit. Why are we in the wrong unit? Oh, there's something written on the floor in here. And yeah, what does it say? It says, "Oh, will you marry me?" I went. And and all I got was a blank silence and an open mouth for at least 30 or 40 seconds. In the end, I stuck my head out the door and said, oh, mate, at the end of the footpath, you might as well bring your bags down, mate, because I don't know whether I'm getting an answer anytime soon. (laughs) Yes, it took a few minutes for the the shock to, because she had absolutely no idea that it was coming, for the shock to wear off and... um, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. So, and where did you get married? We got married here. Um, actually, got married out at um, out at Ski Beach, out at Drimmy Head, um, out at Klaus Helms's place. Klaus is a good old friend of mine, and um, yeah, we were looking for somewhere to get married. And at the time, I was looking to use the little beach down to sort of where he he lives on the hill out there, down to the left of his property, and um, rang him just to organise permission to go out there and do that. And um, at the time, he sort of said, "Well." 
He said, yeah, I can. He said, why don't you come out here and we'll have a, have a chat about it. I went, yeah, right, no worries. So I went out to his place and his, his place actually sitting on the hill there. You walk up a little footpath and there's this massive open area that just basically looks out over the top of the, um, over the, top of the bay, out over the granites and what have you. So he took us up there and said, do you think this would do? And I went, of course this will do. And he went, yeah, that's good. You can come and have your wedding here. So um, at the time we were, like all weddings, trying to, I mean, it wasn't something that we wanted to spend $100,000 on. So we were looking to, to do it ourselves and for the cheapest possible method. So things just fell into line for us. The, the ladies at the time that used to, uh, Debbie Hanks and the other ladies that used to run the Deb Ball that decorated the town hall um, all said, well, we're decorating the hall for your wedding because we're, we're having a reception at the town hall. We're going to decorate the hall for your wedding. Okay, right, no worries. So we left them off to do that. Aww. and Chris Putland drove the girls around and, and Evelyn to, to and from the ceremony. And, uh, yeah, it was it, it became a real um, sort of go family affair in that all of the people that we'd been associated with then sort of assisted us to, to make the, the day a special day. So. Isn't that beautiful? Mm, it was fantastic. Wow. Uh, you mentioned Evelyn had two children when you guys met. Yep. And so you were super young. Did you take on a father role straight away? Uh, I know I became a poppy or a grandfather at the age of about 23. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So they're a bit older, yeah. Yeah, that didn't really help. Um, well, the, the, 23-year-old kids, grandpa, yeah, that's going to be it. I love being called poppy at the age of 23. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, her kids, to be honest, were, were a little older anyway. I mean, um, they were sort of late teenage years, so they didn't really need a father figure as such. I mean, yeah. I probably have to a degree, to, but, yeah, no, yeah. not sort of didn't step into that role as, as such where, where that was concerned. Yeah, sweet. Blue, I guess I guess I'd love to ask you why are you still here? Well, I'm still here because I love the place. Um, it was interesting. I was standing at the, the the front security counter there about two days ago and um, a gentleman that's been in town for quite a while was talking to somebody else at the counter and he said to them, oh, where are you going? And they said, oh, we're going to Cairns or Brisbane, wherever it happened to be. And he said, oh, are you going out to civilization?" And they went, oh, yeah. And I looked at him and I went, you know what? And I said, that's just wrong. He said, what do you mean? And I said, I always, every year, I say, I'm going on holidays and I'm coming back to civilization because as far as I'm concerned, that's what Gove is. I mean, it's the community itself, yes, it's changed over time or what have you, but I mean, it's there are still um, a lot of people in this town that, that have a passion for the place um, and that, to a degree, make it what it is. Um, and I think while ever those people are here, Gove will continue to exist in whatever shape or form it takes. Um, and a lot of people have said to me, aren't you worried about the fact that Gove might close down one day? I don't ever see Gove closing down. Um, it's it's too big a, a hub for Indigenous communities and other things in the region. So while one day, yes, maybe there might not be a mine here anymore, I don't ever see that the, the community itself will ever leave. It might become smaller. It'll change, of course. But um, but that's life. You can't you can't dwell on those sorts of things. So. And do you, will you stick around? Yeah, I have no plans to, to go anywhere anytime soon. Um, yeah, said so we're... Uh, Owning three businesses in town, while yes, none of them are really doing very well, unfortunately, but that's just the current economic climate in town. Um, but as I said, you live in hope that one day those things will turn around. And at the end of the day, I'm just hoping that the businesses can improve so that we can continue to make a life here. And not only that, contribute to the community. I always enjoy um, 
through those businesses trying to sponsor various people for bits and pieces and, and, and do other things that are involved in the community as well. So. Well, you definitely do that. You've always been a bit of a fixture of the town, I, I think. Yeah, I'm, again, I was having a conversation yesterday. I think it was somebody somebody that's just come back to town and uh, they said, oh, you're still here. I went, yeah, yeah, I had the light switch installed recently. I'll turn the lights off when everybody else leaves. <laughs> so I, um, for many years up until before the curtailment, I used to, um, as people left, um, I'd say to them, guess what? And they go, what? I'll still be here when you get back. No, 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 we're never coming back here. No, we've had enough of this place. It's crap. Yeah, yeah, no worries. When you get back, I'll still be here. <laughs> no, 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 we're never coming back. And probably 70% of the time, I was right. We'd, uh, I mean, with the curtailment, of course, a massive number of people left, so that was never going to be the case there. Mm. But, um, yeah, with just people leaving or what have you, I mean, I've, I've recently heard of another family that's only been gone 15 months. They left town. They're back in town again, so... Um, yeah, so as I said, it's it's just one of those places where people and, and the town is absolutely full of them. Everybody, there'll be many people that'll say, "Oh, look, we only ever came to go for six months, and fifteen years later, twenty years later, thirty years later, whatever it happens to be, they're still here." Yeah, so it's exactly what happened with us. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right, and and then the place is full of them. It's full of people like that, and that's a good thing. Why? What do you think um, it is that brings people back? Um, I think at the end of the day, it just has to be the lifestyle and the community that's here. Um, as I said, unfortunately, the community has changed a bit over time, in that, um, and, but that just comes with people's lifestyles and things that they've got going on as to, as to sort of commitments to local sporting bodies and things like that. I know that a lot, of, a lot of the local sporting bodies and things struggle to get volunteers this day, these days, which is a little bit sad, but as I said, it's just, a, it's just a factor of life that happens. So. But having said that, there are also a lot of people that put a lot of hard work and time into, into those sorts of things. So. Blue, thank you so much for coming in and it's been an absolute honour to have you because you really are this like pinnacle, I think, of, of the community and you've done a lot for a lot of people, myself included. The Deb Ball, I have so many fabulous memories. So I would like to say a big thank you to you and yeah, thanks for coming in for a chat. No, not a problem at all. It's, as I said, it's been a pleasure here and it's it's... While it's always nice to hear those sorts of things, I certainly don't aim to to be the pinnacle of the community. If that's if that's the case, if that's what happens, then that's great. But um, at the end of the day, I'm just hoping that we can continue to make a, a good life here in Gove and that Gove continues to move on and, and be the, the fantastic community that it is. Yeah. I, I feel like there's no doubt that it will. It's just changing evolving beast really, isn't it? It is. It's it is a changing evolving beast and it's it's it all comes down to people being open to move with those changes and not um, and not sort of being stagnant and stuck in the one thing. I mean, I've, I say it about work things all the time. There's a reason why dinosaurs are extinct. It's because they couldn't adapt and change to their environment. Um, the same thing goes to communities like this. If, yeah, if, if, if you're going to be a dinosaur and assume that um, the place is never going to change, then you'll be sadly disappointed. But if you're prepared to try and adapt and change with it, then um, it'll still be the fantastic community that it is. So true. Thanks, Blue. Not a problem at all. Thanks, Monica. I cannot believe we are already up to number 12 of the Northeast Arnhem Land with Mon podcast. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. If you are, it would be absolutely amazing if you could give it a review in your podcast app. Remember, every review helps. As usual, a huge thank you to Gove FM. This podcast would not be possible without this station. And finally, thank you for hanging out. 
I'm Monica O'Hanlon. That was Northeast Arnhem Land with Mon. I'll see you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.